We'll be starting in verse 45. But as you get there, let me just mention two things. I hope you're enjoying worshiping God together this morning. There's something that God does in us. There's a, there's a grace that God pours out as we gather together. It's, it's a grace that we don't experience in and of ourselves as we are privately worshiping God. In our, our, in our own uh, devotional times, in our own families, there's a unique experience that comes from gathering here. You can't define it. I can't quantify it. But I pray, just as I was sitting there and as we were singing and worshiping, uh, just recognizing there is something beautiful. There is a grace that we receive as we come here. And so I trust that God is ministering to you and to your hearts as you come and gather. And, and we do the things that we know we can do by ourselves, reading of God's word and praying together. But there's a unique thing that God has given to us to come and to gather as a family. And so I hope that he's blessing you this morning. Uh, a second thing, Carrie, keep that new song in our worship list. Uh, I would love to hear that again. What beautiful words, what a beautiful way to worship God. And so uh, I'm thankful for how God gives us the opportunity to praise him. Let's read, beginning in Mark 6.45, we're going to read the story of Jesus walking on the water. In verse 45, it begins... Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. And he saw the disciples straining at the oars because of the wind that was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, He went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because as they saw him, they were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. And they were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over the land at Gennesaret and anchored there, as soon as they got out of the boat, the people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages or towns or countryside, they picked the uh, they placed the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged him to let them come to t- and even touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Let's pray. God, we praise you that we have your word, and we have your works to guide us in helping us understand who you are. This morning, as we study this miracle of walking on the waters, of Jesus arriving in the towns and the villages and literally people touching the edge of his garment and being healed. God, give us insight to understand who you are and give us insight to understand how we should worship you as a result. Pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. So this morning we pick up our account 
of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And as we left off last week, you noticed that the, the text begins this week uh, really fast-paced. This is immediately after Jesus feeds the 5,000 that he's going to dismiss the crowds and his disciples. And Jesus is going to head up to a mountain and is going to spend time alone with God. This morning, I want to focus specifically on verses 45 to 52. Because on the heels of what we, we said was Jesus' largest miracle, meaning that his miracle that involved the most people, we're going to see Jesus privately perform two miracles just for his disciples, nobody else. That they were going to witness Jesus walking on the water, and they're going to see Jesus calm the winds, this time without a word, just by getting in the boat. And so after a night of praying, Jesus is going to walk out to his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to deliberately reveal uh, himself as God. And where Mark takes this account is very interesting, because the way that uh, Mark provides commentary on verse 52, where he says that they didn't understand what Jesus was revealing because their hearts were hard. Now, if you know this story, then you know in Matthew, Matthew is a story where we actually read about Peter trying to step out on the waters as well. This is not the focus of Mark. Mark is going to not focus on Peter also wanting to step out. That's a different sermon. Mark is going to point us to something that is, uh, he wants us to see and perceive about the disciples and about this journey that they're on of first following Jesus but on that journey, trying to understand who he is by his works and his words. And what Mark is going to tell us in this passage is that their hearts are hard. Now, that should kind of create a little tension in our hearts, because you're thinking, oh, wait, whoa, 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 these are the disciples. We've, we've heard that Jesus said the scribes and the Pharisees' hearts were hard. But what does this mean, this commentary that Mark wants us to see, that the disciples' hearts are hard? And so... That's where we're going to dive in today. We really want to take a look at why is, is Mark sharing the story of Jesus walking in the water and what is, a very, uh, what is his meaning in sharing this unique description of the disciples' hearts being hard. So here's how we're going to do that. We're going to do that in three questions this morning. In verses 45 and 46, I want to ask the question, why? Why did Jesus bring such a quick ending to the feeding of the 5,000? That's a really important part of the story. Why? Now, if you are uh, younger in age, and when I say younger in age, I mean anyone from our kids coloring to those uh, who are uh, also, maybe your mom and dad are here, you're no longer in the coloring age, but mom and dad are here with you. Uh, or this is a question for your spouse. Here's what I want. You can take our questions today, and you could basically use these to ask one another, invite one another to understand, what did you get out of the sermon? We're going to talk about a why, a what, and a how. So the why, and I need everybody paying attention, all the little ears. This is how you can talk to mom and dad. They have to have the answers. You don't. Why is, why did Jesus bring such a quick ending to the miracle instead of staying and celebrating? It's a really important question. Why? Secondly, what? So what is the meaning of this miracle of walking on the water? Because Jesus doesn't perform miracles just to show his powers. Like, hey guys, look at this. Really cool. I can walk on water. <laughs> like, wow, Jesus. Jesus actually performed this miracle for a reason. 
And so we want to get to the bottom of what was Jesus doing in this miracle? The third thing is how. We need to ask ourselves, how can disciples' hearts be hard? Because mostly we, we think of this hard heart in terms of sin. And we have seen it of Jesus' opponents or enemies. But Jesus is talking about, or these are his disciples, and Mark is telling us, this, they're not new on the journey. She, Mark says their hearts are hard. We need to find out what this means. All right, everybody on the journey with me? We got to ask ourselves why. Why, did the, why in the midst of when you should be celebrating after the feeding of the 5,000, did Jesus call an end to the party? We need to talk about what. What in the world was Jesus doing by walking on water? There's got to be significance. And it's not, look at me, I also can defy the laws of physics. And how, how can hearts be hard that are following Jesus? All right, those are our three questions. Put those in your mind. And like I said, uh, this isn't just to be silly. For, if you're kids, then use these questions to ask your mom and dad what they learned today. And when your mom and dad explain it, you'll have a little family exercise. They'll have to figure out how to explain to you, uh, and they will tell you the why, the what, and the how. And also, as a spouse uh, or as singles, use this at your conversation or with lunch afterwards. Talk about the why, the what, and the how. Make sure that the words that we discuss and the way that we worship God and the reading of his word goes and, and has an effect on your life outside of here. So review it together. Let's dive right in. I want to talk, uh, take a look at this why. We're at verses 45 and 46. And just notice, it says, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him while he dismissed the crowd. Right? So we have this miracle in the feeding of the 5,000. And you would think what would happen next would be celebration. Celebrating the fact that this was an amazing miracle that we had all seen and partaken of. And so... Why? So notice the strange and abrupt translation or, or transition. Mark says immediately. Also notice the very strong word. So my English version here in the NIV just says made. But literally, if he went to the Greek, this is compelled. He forced his disciples to go. Forced. Which to me would imply they wanted to stay and to celebrate the crowds are wanting to stay, and Jesus is going to actually separate his disciples. He puts them in a boat and says, you go across, and he's going to tell the crowds, I need you to go away. And then he's going to go to the mountain and pray. Now, so we have this immediately, we have this made his disciples get in the boat and made the crowds go away. And it leaves us asking the question, and this is where I've been sharing with you as we've been going through Mark, Mark is one account. We have four Gospels. Now, the only one of the Gospels that gives us a little bit of an understanding of what was taking place is John. So let me read John. I want to read 6, 12 to 15. And John is going to add something to the end of the feeding of the 5,000 that will give us insight to why did the party suddenly end. So picking up in verse 12, it says this. When they had all eaten enough, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, and they filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves uh, left over by those who had eaten. So, so far, we're tracking the same. Nothing's different than the account of Mark. 
But notice what happens in verse 14. It says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him their king by force, withdrew again to a mountainside by himself. Did you see what was taking place? Did you see where the feeding of the 5,000 was leading? So if we're going to answer the question of why, why did Jesus bring such a quick ending to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? It's this. The people comprehend his power, but not his purpose or mission. They immediately move to want to make him king. Now, if you are understanding, and, and, and if, if you have been kind of brought up in church, then you know that Jesus' mission is not to come as a conquering king. Jesus' mission was not to take this. And by the way, did you remember, remember when Mark told us, he just told us very specifically, there's 5,000 men. You think, why did he just note that, 5,000 men? Let me tell you, 5,000 men is a pretty good start to having your own troops and having your own revolution and taking over the area of Galilee. Plus, so we have uh, those 5,000 men, we have those who have seen this miracle, and it, and it says, they said, this is the prophet. They intended to come and make him king. They are sitting there looking and saying, if this man could take five loaves and two fish, and he can miraculously, literally create things out of nothing, then let's make this man king, and let's begin here in Galilee, and let's topple Herod and his, his puppet regime, and let's begin building heaven here on earth. And so this is where the crowds begin to go with their understanding of Jesus. As they see his power, they're thinking, what limits does this guy have? If, if this is truly a prophet sent from God, then let's begin building the kingdom now. But here's the reality. Jesus wasn't coming to first establish himself as a conquering king and building a physical kingdom here. Jesus was coming to die and to suffer for sin and to build his kingdom by opening a door that you and I might come in. If Jesus established his kingdom right here and right now, Jesus would have probably had as many warriors as he wanted, but one thing would never happen is once they died, he would not have a single soul in the kingdom. It's because the people's problem wasn't Rome and it wasn't Herod. The issue was the fact that our sin separates us from a holy God. And Jesus' desire is to come and to lay his life down for us. And so why did Jesus dismiss this crowd? Why the abrupt ending to the party? It's because they understood his power. They got that. They didn't understand his purpose or mission. Now, let's move to answering our second question, which is the what. In verses 47 to 52, we're going to see that Jesus is going to walk on water. And I want to take a look and just say, well, what was Jesus doing? What was the meaning of this? What did he intend to reveal about himself by walking on water and calming the winds? So just a few preliminary things before we dive in. Did you notice in the text that, uh, I don't know what your version has, I read the NIV and it says they were struggling to row. Anybody have a different word in, in their, their version? NIV was struggling. Anybody have a, a different word there 
for them rowing? Painfully. Painfully. All right. And any others? Toiling. Straining. Straining? Toiling. Toiling. All right. Now, if any of you have ever done physical exercise, you will know that there are points where it is so laborious that it is, it is painful. It is torturous. To get a picture of, of what's taking place, remember Jesus had dismissed his disciples and he told them to go across the sea to Bethsaida? We don't know how many hours. Uh, your version might give a time. I think the version I said it is with the fourth watch. So we know very specifically, uh, the, according to the Roman reckoning, the fourth watch was sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And, and uh, I know from... The, the light outside my window, the way the light shines in my window when I'm asleep, right around 4 or 4.30, I start seeing light outside and I start hearing birds. Uh, so this is, Jesus has spent the night praying. It's probably approaching dawn. His disciples, that means, have been literally rowing for hours and they're still in the middle of the sea. And we're told that there's a, a, a strong wind pushing against them. And so there, this struggling means, like, literally, it is physically tortuous, uh, is, is the, the meaning of the actual word here. They're, they are experiencing physical torture, and they're making no headway. Still in the middle of the sea. I don't know, have you ever gotten, uh, like, bit, bit something off, and you think, hey, I can get it done? And, like, halfway through, you're thinking, this is going to be hours longer. I'm already physically spent what does that do uh, to your, your encouragement right there? Like, uh, so you're just like, man, I'll just stop rowing. Maybe I'll get blown all the way back. Uh, so just picture Jesus' disciples and just know that's how they feel. This is how they feel. Uh, and, and remember before when, when Jesus sent his disciples across the way and they ran into the big storm in the sea? I think the disciples are probably getting like, hey, if that guy tells us to get into a boat, do not go. Only bad things happen. First we ran into the storm. Now we're, we're rowing and it's physically torturous. Uh, the next thing I just want to explain is it says they think they see a ghost. And if you think about it, this idea makes sense. The disciples are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And towards them, they see something approaching. I don't know how long it was before somebody probably looking like, do you guys see something? So we don't get all of the side conversations. But one thing the boat was not was not silent. They didn't silently watch something approaching them. But probably as they're looking off, rowing the boat, somebody said, hey, do you see that? And they're watching it. They're watching it coming closer and closer. I don't know what it looked like, but I do know uh, it's, it's nighttime. I do know... As, this is not the ocean, it's the Sea of Galilee, but waves come and go, so they probably saw, like, that looks like a head, almost looks like a person. They're watching, it's getting closer. And here's the other thing they know. Just like we know physics, they know physics, and they know people don't walk on water. So in their mind, there's this, there's this tension going on. But like, it almost looks like a person. But surely it can't be a person. So then they went to the next uh, thing that they thought could only explain this. This must be some kind of spirit or ghost. So the text says ghost, the idea here is this is a spirit. It's something that doesn't have physical body because they know just as well as we do. Anything that has a physical body and has weight would sink. And so when this supernatural thing that they see approaching them, that they begin to recognize that almost looks like a person, begins to approach them, you can imagine that they are filled with terror. And so they're afraid that a ghost might be approaching. Now, 
I'll, I'll let you figure out for yourself, should they have recognized, man, with all the miracles Jesus performed, maybe it's Jesus. I'll just say they didn't put that together. I'll just tell you that they will leave it as Mark puts it. They were terrified. So I want to take a look and dive into, so what does this mean? And I think the thing that's going to help us is I want to take a look at two Old Testament concepts that will help us understand what is going on right here with Jesus walking on water. And first we're going to take a look at this phrase, pass them by. And I want us to see that Jesus is specifically trying to reveal something about himself by walking on the waters. Now, if, if, um, if I said I, 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 wanted to, to, uh, I wanted to show you something or I wanted to put something in front of you, you had the idea that I might be wanting to like, present something. Let's say I had a brand new car. Uh, and so I, I, I'm looking at Tim and Jackie, right? Let's say, hey, I got a brand new car. Um, and if uh, I want to kind of surprise them, I might want to drive by their place and just pass by so that I might be able to show them my new car, right? We would use the, this idea of passing by in a similar sense. And, and we know that if we want to, to show somebody, we bring it in front of them so that they can see it. And we have to get this sense in that Jesus walks on water to, to literally place himself in front of his disciples so that they see something that is going to give them a knowledge of him. Now, in the Old Testament, whenever God wanted to reveal himself to his people, do you remember that he uses this language of passing them by? And I don't know if you know this, but Jesus is God's son, and he often does things the way that his father did. And so when we see this pass by language... Let me just point out three different occurrences where when God is trying to reveal himself to men or a man, specifically Moses, he uses this pass-by language. So in Exodus 33, 19, when when we're talking about God revealing himself to his people Israel, he says this, 33, 19, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And you will proclaim my name to the Lord. And the version I have here might be a little bit different behind. I think I'm reading from the ESV in my notes. You'll see it behind you, but you get the idea of passing before, passing in front. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So you see in Exodus 33, 19, what is God doing? In order to reveal himself, he passes in front of his people to reveal his character. Let's take a look at Exodus 33, 22. And it says, And while my glory does what? Passes by. I will put you in a cleft in the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And this situa- situation here in the Old Testament, we know that the holiness of God is, uh, is such that uh, they can't even see him in his glory. And so God says, I'm going to put you in the cleft, and I'm going to cover my hand, and I'm going to pass by so that you see my glory. In Exodus 34, 6, it says this, The Lord passed in front of him, this is meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So I need you to make a connection here. And Do you see this connection? Do you see from the Old Testament that every time that God wanted to reveal his character, did you notice in all these verses, whenever it, uh, well, in 19 and verse uh, also in 6, that both times where the Lord passes in front of him, immediately it follows with the description of who God is so that they might know him, so that they might 
uh, love him and trust him and worship him. And I need you to see that when Jesus determines to pass by his disciples, to walk on the water, Jesus is wanting to literally pass in front of them. He's not wanting to pass them by like, hey, you guys are in the boat. I'm walking ahead to the land. I'll meet you when you get over there. That's not the idea of passing them by. The idea of passing by was that he wanted to show them. He wanted to literally walk in front of them so they would see with their own eyes. That's Jesus. And what Jesus wants to do is reveal a part of who he is. Now, second thing I want us to see. So we're still answering this question, what? The second thing I want us to see in the language is this actual fact of walking on water. I want us to go to Job, because also in the Old Testament, there's only two places where we hear of the water walker, and that is God himself. In Job 9.8, very specifically, now I'm going to read some of the verses before and after. This is Job 9.5-10. Be listening for verse 8. Job is describing God, and it says, he moves mountains without their knowing it, and he overturns them in his anger. He shakes from the earth, or he shakes the earth from its place, and he makes its pillars to tremble. He speaks to the sun, and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. Notice verse 8, he alone, only God, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Who is the one who walks on the waters? God. God alone. It goes on in verses 9 and 10. It says, He is the maker of the bear and Orion. He's looking at the constellations in the skies of uh, Pleiades and the constellations of the south. I don't even know if I pronounced that anywhere close, but uh, we'll keep on going. Constellations. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Let me read 38.16. And once again, I'll give you some context afterwards. 38.16, this is Job. It says, Have you journeyed to the springs of the deep or walked on the recesses of the deep? Who walks on the water? It's not Job. It's not mankind. God says, I am the one who walks in the recesses of the deep. It says, Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Who does all these things? God. God alone. Both passages are specifically pointing to the difference between man and God and how God is the only one who does these things. So if we're going to ask this question, what? What is this miracle of Jesus passing by his disciples and specifically doing that by walking on water? What does it reveal? Here's what it reveals. The miracle reveals who Jesus truly is. Jesus is revealing himself as God, doing only the things that God can do. All right? So we've answered two questions. We've taken a look at why. Why did Jesus abruptly end the feeding of the 5,000? It was because they understood his power, but they didn't understand his purpose. Why did Jesus, we keep in mind, this second miracle was only for Jesus' disciples. It was not for the crowds. Jesus revealed himself in a way that was completely unique. The disciples had access to Jesus' self-revelation of himself in a very unique way. The crowds didn't see Jesus walking in the water. The crowds didn't see Jesus get in the boat. And the crowds didn't see the, way, the, the wind immediately calm down. But his disciples did. And what was Jesus doing? He was revealing to them who. 
who, 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 who he was. Now, lastly, we've got to answer this question of how. Because I want to get to this idea because Mark ends this account in the Gospel of Mark with the fact that they didn't comprehend, that their hearts were hard. And that's this very strange thing to say about his own disciples or what, for Mark to write about Jesus' disciples. So we want to dig further into this and we want to be able to answer the question, how does this happen? So let's just look at the text, a couple preliminary things. Amazed. Uh, it says they were amazed. This occurrence of this word, uh, where it uses for amazed, just to give you some uh, context, this is even stronger than their response to Jesus raising a dead girl. If you take the two words, you compare them. This is a stronger response. So Mark has put in, uh, into this story a word for amazement. It means amazement to an excessive degree. So it's almost like a superlative. It's saying the amazement can't get any greater than what they just experienced. A word about the fact that they did not understand. So we're told that they did not understand. So what does it mean to understand? Because this is something that we, we have to comprehend together. To say that somebody understands something, it means that they have a capacity to arrive at insight. It, it means that they're, they're taking things that they've seen or facts that they, they see or the story that's unfolding and, and they're putting them together and arriving at insight. This is what it means to understand. And when you don't understand, it means that you are not perceiving, that you're not comprehending, that two people are looking at the same thing. One person, it's almost like we take a puzzle, we put it in here, it's in a box. I take a look at that puzzle and I'm thinking, okay, this resonates with me. I've seen this before. There's a picture on the front and I know that there's pieces in the box and I know that when I take the lid off, I put the pieces together, right? Everybody who has done that knows, yeah, it's really simple. I know and comprehend. I have seen something like this before. But what we are being told about the disciples is they are not putting pieces together. Right? So just imagine, I don't know, if, if you took a box and you, we, let's say we flew over to somewhere in the Amazon to a tribe that has not had contact with the outside world and we just put that box and all the pieces together. It might take them a while. Maybe they'll figure it all out. But at first, what is this? It looks like a picture. Maybe they just put the picture on there, this is a beautiful picture. Or uh, maybe they take it out and they look at it. Maybe they'll figure out the puzzle pieces. But w- what I can say is it takes some time to put insight. You, you, you're taking a look at what's physically in front of you. You're taking a look at what your hands can touch, what your eyes can see, even, and your brain is trying to process, have I seen anything like this that helps me put it together? Right? But what Mark is telling us is that the disciples don't understand. So they've been seen and walking with Jesus, but they're not putting the pieces fully together. They're not able to connect the facts. Now, I want to take a look at the reason. So it says they're amazed to an excessive degree. It says that they don't understand. And the reason that we're given is because their hearts are hard. That's what we need to explore right now. Now, the heart simply means the center of a person's mind. So we say heart, but we, what we're actually talking about is like the decision center. It's the center of a person's emotions. It's the center of their knowledge. 
And it's the center of a person's uh, heart or, 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 or like choosing. So what you do with all that information. That's what it, when it says heart. This is what it's talking about. It says it was hardened. Let me just lay out what hardened could mean. Hardened can mean to be stubborn. It could be without feeling. So that there should be certain emotions you should be feeling, but you're not. It could mean dull, right? So we all know that a knife or an axe or something that we want to use for cutting, that we need it to be sharp. When it's used in terms of the heart, it means that it's dull. It can mean to have a closed mind. It could mean closed to new information. If you kind of put all of those things together, it means to stubbornly reject new information. In terms, or in preference, for what knowledge you previously, or, or like what, what, what presuppositions you've already come to believe. So it's rejecting new information. Why? Because you already have tr- truth or propositions that you prefer to be true. That's what this is saying. This is saying... Their hearts are hard. Why are they hard? It's because they're rejecting new information, holding on to their previous information. Is this making maybe a little bit more sense? When it says their hearts are hard, it's to stubbornly reject new information and be unwilling to learn. Just think about this. What, happened, what would happen today if you just chose, I know enough about life, I will stop learning about everything that I could learn about and just live based upon what I have? You probably get by, you'd feed yourself, uh, but I, I would say what we would all know is that your growth would stop, right? Like, so you wouldn't be growing in new areas. You'd just say, here I'm at. Now, so Jesus uses this word, or Mark uses this word to describe Jesus' followers. And the question that we're asking is, how? So how can Jesus' disciples' hearts be hardened? So here's a little, I don't know what you call it. It's almost like a, uh, a formula. And I think it goes something like this. When we hold on to our expectations of who we want Jesus to be and disregard his revelation of who he's revealing himself to be, the result will always be an inability to comprehend Always. When we hold on, so you think, how can our hearts become hardened? How can the disciples' hearts become hardened? And here's what I see in the text. When we hold on to our expectations of who we choose to believe Jesus is versus the revelation of who he is revealing himself to be, Jesus has come, he passes by them, he's going to reveal himself as the one who walks on water. We're told specifically that his disciples didn't comprehend the feeding of the 5,000. So they saw the miracle, but they didn't comprehend anything about Jesus' identity, about his heart as a shepherd, about how the fact that only God can provide for his sheep in this way. They saw the miracle. They saw the food, but they didn't lead, lead to any insider knowledge. So when we hold on to our expectations and reject God's own revelation, it will always result in a lack of comprehension. And if you fail to comprehend God, you will not worship him. Impossible. Impossible. And this is the reality of our default, right? Our, our, our default system is to reject information, 
that does not line up with our expectation. This happens with everything. I don't care whether it's your favorite team. You talk to two different people who have two different, uh, or, or an, an idea of, of uh, who is the best team or who is the best athlete or where is the best place to eat uh, Italian food or, or which, which country has the, the greatest cities to travel to. We all, in a sense, bring in some baggage and we'll, we'll all refer to what we have experienced and what we prefer, Right? If I said, hey, let's all go out to eat afterwards, the reality would be it would just be pulling all of our personal preferences of where we want to go eat. And that only gets us so far. But when we talk about the worship of God, worship of God is done not because of who we desire God to be, but worship is in essence literally just saying what is true about God himself. And the only way we know what's true about God himself is what he reveals to us. Because our mind, and Alex preached on this just a few weeks ago, right? If we go the highest we can go of trying to think God's thoughts, the reality is we go only as far as our own experience. And God is so far above our own personal experience of who he is. In fact, we need God to come to us and reveal himself to us is the only way that we would know who God is. And the only way we would know is because when God would use words, we would immediately take those words and we would put them into our own context of what we understood those words to be. So not only is Jesus constantly telling his disciples who he is, but he's constantly revealing himself, which is why he performs the miracles of feeding the 5,000. It's why he walks on water, so that they not only understand, but they can see. And the problem with the disciples at this point in time is this. They're so set in their desire, almost like the crowds. Why did I start with the crowds in John 6? Is because they had witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. They're getting ready to witness Jesus walk on water. And what we're told is their hearts aren't ready for new information. I don't know what they're thinking and talking about when they're rowing. I have an idea that they were probably thinking about, why did Jesus send us away? Because there was 5,000 men gathered who would have gladly bowed their knee, worshiped Jesus, and said, we, are, we will serve you, we will lay down our lives for you. And Jesus says, I don't want you to lay down your life for me. I came down to lay my life down for you. You see the fundamental difference of how we would go about things? The world sees Jesus in his power, and they say, Jesus, let us serve you. You lead, you go, and and let's have a conquering army that will suddenly take back the world. And Jesus says, I don't think you understand. Let me lay my life down for you. Let me conquer sin, and let me conquer death, and let me invite you into my victory. So why is this important for you today? We looked at three reasons. We looked at Why did the party end? We looked at what Jesus was doing through the miracle. We looked at how hearts can be hard. How can they become hard? It's when we choose to hold on to our own expectations of who we want God to be. Rejecting his self-revelation of who he is. And as a result, the end product is an inability to comprehend. So why is it important? Let me just give you two reasons and then we'll end today. In the very same way that Jesus was revealing himself to his disciples, Jesus is revealing himself to you. You didn't come here by mistake. If you are in this room, or if you have been in church, if you have, uh, if you have had uh, the opportunity to be raised in a family of faith, 
God has been revealing himself. God reveals himself through his word. God reveals himself through those who have begun to follow him. And as they share who they have found Jesus to be, God reveals himself through his church. God reveals himself through the spoken word, the preached word. So I believe with all my heart that the reason that you're here this morning is because God intends to reveal himself to you. It's the only reason. And if God's desire is to reveal himself to you, then the question is, are you responding? That's why this is important. Are you responding to what God's doing? Because there's never a time that God's not at work. I don't think that 12 men rowing a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee thought, these are the times when God really shows up and works. I think they were being tortured, struggling at the ro- at, with the oars, thinking, I don't know about this following Jesus stuff, because we always end up either staying past our limits, feeding 5,000 when we should have been home a long time ago, out in the middle of the, the, the uh, Sea of Galilee, twice now, in the middle of arguments all the time in the synagogues, And I don't know where you are at in your personal life. Maybe you're just arriving in Frankfurt and you're thinking, what is God doing in my life here? Why Germany? I've asked that question. Sure you have too. Maybe you're finishing the season in Germany and thinking, why, why was I there and what is next for me? Maybe you spent a lot more time in Germany than you ever thought. Think, I thought I was coming for two years. Maybe like me, I'm at nine. I'm thinking, wow. Maybe you're starting your career. Maybe you're looking... Maybe you're trying to rebuild after something that has happened. I don't know where you're at, but here's what I know. Jesus is in details, and God doesn't waste anything. He's revealing himself to you so that you would know him. And only if you respond to what God is revealing, not your expectations, only if you respond to who God is revealing himself to be in those situations will you be able to comprehend and worship. It's because when we make Jesus into who we want him to be, and our worship is based on a God who does everything that we want. You have nothing better than a slot machine. Whenever you pull the right levers, you get God to give you what you want. If, if that is what God looks like, let me just tell you, it's a God of your own making. It's not the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. Let me tell you the second reason I think it's so important. is because true worship is at stake. The God we worship, or who God is, is fueled by our understanding of Jesus and his mission and his purpose. We will get no further in worshiping God unless we respond to Jesus, his purpose, and mission. It starts there. God sent Jesus to reveal himself to you so you would know who he is, how he acts, how he loves, how he lays his life down, what he says is right, what he says is true, how he invites us to live our lives. And the response to that is simply worship. When we respond, or when, when we hear and we choose to put our lives in line with what God says, that's worship. Worship is not only what we do when we sing. It's not only what we do when we come for a worship service. Worship is all of life, simply responding to who God has revealed himself to be. When you align your life with how God has revealed him to be, in his character, that's worship. And so that's why this matters. It's because every step that you make to align yourself with Jesus and his mission is worship. And that is what is at stake. Let me close by reading a text from 2 Corinthians. I'm in chapter 3. 
I'm looking at 12 to 8. I'm going to read a longer section. I can't think of a better way to close what we're talking about of, of our hearts that are hardened to who God has revealed himself to be. It's a little bit longer passage, but just listen. Verse 12, it says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would wear a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So that if, if uh, that scripture is a little confusing, Moses would meet with God on behalf of the people. When he would do so, he would wear a veil afterwards because his face would literally shine from being in God's presence. But listen to this in verse 14. It says, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, they're talking about the Old Testament, the same veil remains unlifted. Where were Jesus' disciples? They were still thinking Old Testament, and they are still not understanding who Jesus is. It says, so the veil remains unlifted. There's still a veil there in front of our eyes. And it says, because only through Jesus Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever we read Moses, it's, there's a veil over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And listen to verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree to another. Praise Jesus. In Jesus, the veil is lifted, and he is the only one who can lift the veil. Let's pray. God, we believe that the one who walked on water in this story, Jesus was the God-man, God himself coming to earth to reveal his heart to us. And God, I pray that as the crowd saw your power, as the disciples saw your power, that was undeniable. The hard thing for us is to align our lives with your purpose and mission. It's hard not to just pray for the things that we see that are good, that we want right now. I don't know where each of us is, what season of life that we're in, but here's what I know. We all have hopes and desires. We all have a way that we want you to act, but Father, we invite you, we ask you, what is it that you are revealing about yourself that you want us to align our hearts with? So they don't become hardened, but the end result is that they become hearts that are aflame, worshiping you. Because we responded to what you're revealing, your revelation, and not our own expectations. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.